unfortunately is not here because I would have so many questions for him. The incredible amount of access he got to to Maya Gang and and this last scene was incredible, of course. But um, since you've uh, selected this film in in uh, the refer in reference to your book, If Mayors Rule the World, which is very much about democracy and the the theme of democracy that you've been writing about for thirty years now, now. Not Zhu Hao, unfortunately. <laughs> no, 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 that's uh, the mystery guest. We have him all the time, but he didn't say a word so far. Um, respect to democracy. There's a lot to be said about the film, but uh, Gang Smash Smash, as his uh, nickname is, I, uh, I heard, um, is not your model Democrat, is he? Actually, if you know mayors who are effective, he is very much the model Democrat, because the model Democrat is not somebody who sits and does nothing and let the bureaucrats say that's not allowed, that's not what's permitted. The model mayor is the one who says this is what must be done, but it has to be done with the participation and engagement of the people. And Gang is amazing in two ways. He's not a Chinese bureaucrat like so many mayors are, appointed from the party and waiting for their next post in the party hierarchy. He cared deeply about the city, which mayors usually do. But also, where there are mayors like that, in Shanghai uh, and uh, Beijing in particular, have had some forceful mayors, they usually do what they do without any engagement with the citizen population. And that engagement uh, with the citizen population, which might look, from our point of view, a little bit staged and, well, he's just going out and talking to him, that he does it at all in China is quite extraordinary. So in that sense, he is both a more forceful mayor than most, but also in many ways a more engaged mayor, aware of citizens and aware of their needs and the fact that he talked to them, uh, whether it was on camera or not, was, was quite extraordinary. Yeah. And in, in that respect, the, the, the rather remarkable turn in the film, uh, as for his relationship to the population, where in the beginning there's, there's a lot of protest and angry people, and in the end when he's kicked out, in fact, by the party, uh, there's a demonstration, which is, I mean, demonstrations are probably not rare in China, but it's rare that we see them, um, for people demonstrating against him being, being kicked out. That, that for you signifies that, that in fact, in, in Chinese uh, dimensions, he is a, a Democrat. I think so. You also saw there were armed policemen with shields. So this was a serious demonstration. It wasn't a stage demonstration because the police were out, obviously, to prevent it from uh, going too far or getting out of getting out of hand. Obviously, in a place like China, there's no way we can know fully what was staged and what was not staged, what was real and what was put on, uh, how many of those interactions were chosen for whatever reasons they were chosen. But again, the relevant question is always as compared to what? And as compared to what most Chinese mayors do as communist party officials appointed top down. Uh, the developers go in and they tear down stuff all over China. What I think you all know is that the population of China 25 years ago was a billion people in villages and 300 million people in cities. Today, something like half of the people from the villages, three to four hundred million people have moved to the cities. And the result is development and construction everywhere all over China. So that wasn't unusual. What was unusual is that Mayor Gang was trying to restore part of the ancient city and actually taking down housing at a time when in most cities it's going up, up, up 
all the time. And he had a vision for his city about preserving the past and so on, which again is very unusual because developers in China, like developers everywhere, are not terribly interested in the past. Yeah. No, and, and the irony of the fact is that uh, Meiji Gang is now restoring what was smashed uh, 40, 50 years ago in the Cultural Revolution, probably. Um, on the other hand, he, he has a very... Uh, pragmatic take on culture because at a certain moment when they're talking about these decorations he said well if it's older than we it's good you know it's 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 not exactly a very a very uh, strict cultural uh, policy there well yeah and I we all should look at our own cities and what we restore and what Amsterdam restores in the name of its ancient Dutch culture and the culture of the Dutch Republic and how much of that is kind of put up there so tourists will come. I mean, there's all, every mayor has to care about the economy of his city because the future rests on it and culture has an economic dimension, obviously, and to some extent you make compromises in the name, in the name of doing that. But uh, his, his, it seemed to me, at least, you can make your own judgment that his dedication to culture was real and honest and that he was excited by that. He could have done development uh, without even thinking about, uh, without thinking about culture and the past. We'll, we'll talk about mayors more and about your book and about the ideas you have mayors, but, but sting to the film uh, a little bit more. Uh, it, it's, it's also quite telling about uh, the political process and the way the party works in, in, in China, at least in, in this case. Um, it would seem to me like a rather perverse stimulus for progress if, if uh, like someone says, uh, the harder they work, uh, the more you get punished, which, which seems to be the case here. Here's, here's a, a mayor that gets powerful in a, in a, in a, a certain sense and maybe therefore is being, is being removed. That, that seems like uh, a rather dysfunctional system to me. Well. The problem is, is it's a top-down system, and the most effective democratic systems are bottom-up, and there's a fundamental tension in China between the top-down and the bottom-up. The mayor of Chongqing, which was the wartime capital of China, and today one of the largest megacities, back at the war it was perhaps two or three million, today it's 30 million people inside Chongqing. Uh, the mayor there was extremely effective. He was the governor of the province as well as the mayor. It was extremely effective, and he was arrested three years ago for corruption, he's been sitting in prison ever since. Primarily, I mean, he was, there was, I'm sure there was some corruption, but there's corruption everywhere. He was also an extremely effective uh, mayor and very threatening uh, to the national government. So the, the, the Communist Party has a deep, deep problem. It's not just that top-down government is tyrannical and unfree, it's that it's inefficient. It doesn't work, and people who are on the, in the provinces, in the cities, know their problems and understand how to fix them. And I think uh, Mayor Gang was so effective because, in fact, he understood the city, understood its problems, and he'll probably be equally effective in his new in his new appointment, but the top-down government doesn't know that. I mentioned earlier that climate change, which is so critical in China, where 60 to 70 percent of the energy comes from coal still, and that's the worst possible fuel in terms of greenhouse emissions, uh, that most of the impetus for change uh, to alternative energy and cleaning up the coal and so on is coming from the mayors of cities who are watching what's happening to uh, to their cities, but this, he is truly an, un, uh, an amazing mayor. The only two cities in China that have mayors with some genuine power, not associated with the power, are Shanghai and Beijing. Those two cities have a special status 
the other cities are ruled from the top down with appointed mayors who come in and have these elections, so-called, of 337 ballots uh, with 337 votes for them from the local officials, not from the population at large. The most stunning thing for those, how many have been to China here? Have some of you been to China? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's well, great. everybody. Yeah, that's, that's good. How many have been to America? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a joke. I know you've been to America. But, but having been to China, uh, you know that for a long time, I, I was there first in the 80s, then the 90s, and then more recently, but there was a time when people speaking up to any officials, let alone a sympathetic mayor, would in fact risk arrest, risk being beaten. And you know, some of those people said they had been beaten uh, when they said they wouldn't move. They were arrested by the police and beaten. So, But the change in mood hmm. is very, very clear from the time of Tiananmen Square uh, in, in 1989 to today. And certainly people stand up. I was particularly impressed by the young woman who was uh, obviously fairly well-educated and so on, who was kind of a professional agitator and dissident, who was, was well-dressed but talking about what she liked and what she didn't like and so on. And she was clearly somebody who was a new kind of Chinese citizen. And she knew the law. And she knew the law well. Yeah. yeah. Now, and, and could it be that um, Xi Jinping now is, he, he starts this big fight against corruption and, and probably uh, in a way against this, this middle layer in the party that is in between maybe the top and, and, and these mayors. Could it be that, that maybe this film uh, could be made in the way it is because some, somehow uh, in, that, in that top circle around him uh, someone thinks that's a good idea? I wish we had the director here because I really can't answer that question. I don't know the extent to which this has official sanction and the extent to which he simply made the film is now showing it in the West. The interesting question is... He's, he's, he's a famous film director. Uh, yeah, but he's made different documentaries. I know that, but ha I, I has don't it know been shown, shown in, China? in China? Do you That's know, Laura? The Laura do you is know? It, has it been shown in China? Do you know? It has not? It has not. It has not? It has not been shown in China. Is, it, is there any expectation that it will, or is that off the table? Wait, wait for the mic, please, Isabel. Oh. Hi. Uh, the film premiered this January in Sundance. And it won a reward, I, an, an award. And yeah, I yes. do know it was uh, very important at that moment for them to get a big international premiere of the film because that would uh, cause exposure, would, which would make it easier for them in China because it was very precarious. And so far, the film has been doing very well in the international festival circuit. And I guess the more that happens, the easier it will be for them to create a moment when they're able to show it there. But so far, as far as I know, it hasn't happened. Because do you know and anything the, about, about his, the director's official position in, in China? Not I mean, so he's much. not a dissident. He worked for Chinese yeah. state television. Yeah, no, and, and what, what I mostly know about is Kizau, the producer of the film, and he works for Chinese state television. Yeah. But most, I mean, I think you see that overall. We have quite a several Chinese films on the festival this year, and what you see is that they work in two worlds. They work for state television, but they also produce their own independent feature-length documentaries dealing with these subjects, but also with other subjects that are not so difficult to deal with in China. I think one thing we know is that winning an award in the West is not a guarantee of success in China or even being shown. Uh, there are even Nobel laureates. You know, I mean, in no, a sense, being prized in the West can actually make it harder in China. The reason that uh, Kisao, the producer who is the one representing the film at the moment, is not here is because he's in Taiwan. 
where he has been nominated for this big prestigious Asian uh, award. So right. at least it's somewhere close. <laughs> Right, although, yeah, again, well. Taiwan <laughs> might be the wrong place if you're interested in getting ahead on the mainland. Although, as you know, the, uh, the Prime Minister of Taiwan did just meet with President Xi, so, you know, maybe things are softening there as, as well. Maybe we should take some questions from the audience. Yeah, we'll maybe we, the, let, let's go yeah. to the audience now if you have any questions uh, at the moment. I have, I have enough here, so don't feel obliged, but please go ahead. Over there, yeah, in the back. I'm not sure if you know, I'm just so curious. There seem to be a lot of people that are taken out of their homes, they're being evicted, and they don't get a new home. Where do they go? I, well, I, I, just two things. One, there's a term in Western law called eminent domain, and it's practiced a lot all over the world. That is to say the right of the of public government to take over in areas where you're doing something else, whether you're building a bridge or a tunnel or a Second Avenue subway in New York, so it's you know, the relocation of people who are in the way of public projects is a universal thing. I think the film was telling us there were this problem of displacement, and I suspect they do what most people do. They were you know, living with relatives, they were living with a son, living with a daughter, or trying to stay as long as they could in places being be demolished. The relocation problem was the largest problem, and again, the difference in this film is that there was a mayor talking to ordinary people about it and trying to make sure that road relocation moved along uh, a little better. But that's, that is always the price and the most difficult system, the difficult problem of a system in which you're trying to develop uh, uh, new, new land, new resources, and new buildings. Yeah. Anybody else? We're not experts on China in the yeah, film, yeah, so yeah. please take that in, yeah. in mind. I, I have a microphone. Where are you? I'm, I'm sorry. Over here. Oh, over there, yes. Yeah, so um, we, we uh, who have limited access to information from interior China depend on documentaries a great deal, and I've seen several here, and also uh, films that are kind of um, a, a hybrid between fiction and documentary that are very effective in showing what the situation is. How would you compare this film in terms of the information that it delivers um, to other films such as The Last Train Home. Um, by the same the, director, by the way. Yes, um, and uh, Ai Weiwei, uh, the two films that have been made about him, and also a film like 24 City, uh, which is a, a kind of a hybrid that shows similar uh, problems. What, how would you compare them? Because you've, I have, I've been locked in this theater for three days and haven't seen yeah. <laughs> any of I, the, those I, films yet. So I'm curious. I'm, I'm asking because I, I would like to know how others see that. I mean, yeah. I don't, yeah. how I compare it. I don't feel entitled to, to answer the question. Do you? Because no, I, I don't. I, because I, 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 I would just films. say that that so-called fictional films so sometimes can give us a more honest and interesting picture than so-called documentaries. But there are documentaries and documentaries, and the thing about this film that we can all make our own judgment about, we got to see the character of that mayor and his wife and his tears close up, and I, for me at least, I had, and I know a lot of mayors, I literally know, and I'm working with hundreds of mayors, he is, even among all those I know, one of the favorite mayors, and I haven't even met him that I've met, because he represents for me the human touch, the sense of being a neighborhood boy. In my book, I say that, uh, that uh, 
mayors are from the hood. You know, they are from the neighborhood. And he, in a sense, made himself, even though he came from somewhere else, from the neighborhood. He was a local. He was very much engaged with his people. He deeply cared, obviously, about what he was doing. And that's what mayors, that's what mayors everywhere do. That the theme of the book is that mayors everywhere, whether it's China, India, Brazil, United States, here a nation of cities in Holland, mayors tend to be homeboys, homegirls. They're from the neighborhood. They understand the problems. They have that personal tench. Mayor Abu Taleb, for example, in Rotterdam, you know, who's the first Muslim uh, Moroccan-born mayor in a country which has had its own major difficulties uh, with its own Muslim population, is an extraordinary mayor. And people love him not because they say, oh, he's the first Muslim mayor, but because they feel he is in touch with them and their city, and they see him as a really good mayor. And for me, at least, Mayor Gang, Whatever you think about whether how much was staged, how much was Potemkin Village, how much was being presented because they wanted it presented, to me it was very clear uh, that Gang represented the kind of engaged mayor that makes mayors a very special kind of politician. You can't imagine President Xi uh, having those conversations with any citizens in China. I saw a question in the back there. Please wait for the mic. It's, it's almost there. No, no, no. Please wait for the mic. It's better for everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, did, did he well as a, as a mayor? That's the key question. I'm still uh, still puzzled uh, because uh, there are two questions. The, the one is, uh, are you doing things good? And the other is, are you doing the good things? Uh, so I agree fully with you. That uh, is, is he doing the things well? Yes, he's, he's very re responsive. He's very com communicative with the citizens. But uh, then the other question, is he doing the, the right things for the citizens? I still doubt. He, he's, he's building a wall for the future and the remembrance of, of Dayton, but is he also doing the good things for the citizens? Is he affording them a better home for, for them all? I'm still puzzled. Well, that's, of course, a good question. We all have to answer it ourselves on the limited basis we have. My own sense, and he says it early in the film, is he made this calculation. I love culture, I love art. This city was the imperial, the capital of imperial China a long time ago. There are today thousands and thousands of cities. There are something like 800 cities over a million people. So, you know, cities are everywhere, new and old. And if you're a mayor, your calculation is, how do I make my city succeed? And I think his decision was, because it was an imperial city, because there was an old wall there, there were some temples, there was some history there, his calculation was both that would uncover and make its cultural past important, but more importantly, that could drive the economy, that could create a tourist economy. I suspect similar calculations have been made in Amsterdam about what gets torn down and what doesn't, because Amsterdam is a great tourist city, and it would be easy to say, you know, let's get her, these canals are not very efficient for automobiles or even a bicycle, so let's, you know, let's get the, but I, obviously no mayor is going to say that because this is a treasure for its architecture and its history and for the canals and so on. And it seems to me that what he was calculating is that is good for China. There would be development. People would be thrown out and relocated in any case. That's happening in every city in China to make room for the new buildings and the population moving in from the villages. But he made the calculation, I think, that culture is good for our soul, but it's also very good for the economy of the city. So if we're gonna redevelop and build buildings, let's do it around that. That would seem to me to be at least a defensible decision. 
whether or not it's the ideal decision that you would make. If, if I may uh, pick up there, um, your point in the book is uh, not only that, that mayors should rule the world or what would happen if they ruled the world because cities are... Um, your point is also that uh, the city is, is uh, better, uh, a better scale for organizing democracy than the nation state. Uh, uh, citizens can have more influence and can be easily uh, um, pulled into the process better in cities than uh, nationwide. Now, if you say mayors are pragmatic and, and they know how to do things and they want to do things and they do things, how does that compare to a democratic process in which all citizens have their say? Because that's not working very uh, fast most of the time. Well, there are qualities that mayors have that make them rule well, but they're directly related to why cities are important. And I think, let me just say a word about cities themselves. This is the Amsterdam international film. It could have been the Dutch Film Festival or the European Documentary Film Festival. I think it's one of the largest, if not the largest in the world, so it could boast simply to be the World Festival. It's the Amsterdam Festival because the city counts. The city is important. We sometimes, in I've spent a lot of time in Brussels, and Commissioner Hahn of the Commission of the Regions and Cities will say, yes, we have many administrative units, the European level, the regional level, the national level, the provincial level, and the city level. The city is an interesting level of administration. And I have said directly to Commissioner Hahn, no, it's not. The city is not a level of administration. It is the Uralt human community. We have been living in towns and cities from the beginning of our time. It is what defines us as people. We're born in cities. We grow up, we're educated in cities. We pray and we play and we work and we get old and we die in cities. Cities are the human community. It's what makes us human. When Aristotle said man is a political animal, a zoon politikon, he meant we live in the polis, naturally. The polis is our natural place. So cities are much more than kind of a level of administration. And one reason why it's so important that mayors come from the city and be part of the city is that they represent that organic, local, municipal quality of the city. When de Tocqueville went to America in the 1830s, he went to actually investigate the new federal government. But very quickly, he realized the important action in citizenship and civility was going on in cities. And he said, instead, democracy in America is about America's towns and cities in the 1830s. And at the end of the book, he says, I have made a great discovery about liberty. Liberty is local. Liberty is municipal. It starts in the cities. Democracy starts in the cities. So the questions about how democratic the mayor is, if he pushes too hard, the fact is democracy starts in that organic community of the city. And that's why in a modern world that has grown so large, if we don't start with the cities, I think democracy will be impossible and solutions will be impossible. Another thing from this film, uh, you could see a lot of citizens here. If you ask them, do you, who do you trust more, Mayor Gang or President Xi? You can imagine what the answer is. But ask the same question in the United States. Who do you trust more, Mayor Obama, uh, President Obama or President Bush or your mayor? You know, whether it's Mayor Garcetti of LA or uh, Mayor de Blasio of New York or Mayor Walsh of Boston. About 35 to 40% of Americans trust the President of the United States, regardless of who he is. It's not Republican or Democrat. They just don't much trust the President. 
10% of Americans trust their own Congress that they elect. One out of 10. Nine out of 10 say we don't trust the Congress. But ask what about the mayor, what about your city councilor? The figures go to 70, 75, 78%. It's true all over the world. We tend to trust our mayors and see them as neighbors who are taking some time to exercise power. We like some more than others, we support some, some are corrupt, some aren't, but we trust them at a visceral level because they're members of our community, which gives them a kind of democratic potency that is terribly important in a world so cynical about democracy. Okay, um, anybody else in the audience? over here in the front, but the mic's going to the back, I see. I have nothing to say, I'm not a mayor. <coughs> Hello everybody, uh, I want to say two things. The uh, first one is I come from China and I don't know, I haven't heard of this director, Zhou Hao. But uh, one thing is, okay. uh, I will be sure he'll be famous soon. So he's not that famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in terms of the uh, documentary, I think the good thing is he he does, he's doing very well, keep an uh, objective eye. I mean, he didn't judge the good or bad. He didn't judge, you know, the mayor is doing good or the mayor is doing bad. I think it's uh, things I want to say. It's, yeah. If I, may, may I ask you a question? Because yep. yep. we were wondering, uh, like, like, like uh, what, what can we trust in this film and what not? What could be staged, what could not be staged? What's your feeling about this film? Well, to be honest, I think uh, the mayor is doing what he can do, I mean, because uh, he's a mayor. And the trick of this documentary is uh, he didn't say anything about this. And I, in my point of view, it's, uh, I think, the mayor you doing think the right thing. A, do you think it's a fairly objective film that shows the reality there, that lets people speak, people speak as freely as they can? Yes, I think they're doing very well, yeah. Okay. Because it happens everywhere in China nowadays, yeah, okay. things. Great, thank you, thank you very much. Another point uh, I would like to discuss, and then uh, we'll have to go to your signing session, if, if anyone wants, of course. Um, you were talking in, in your introduction about global problems, which therefore cannot be solved, as we see with uh, the, the, the 21st climate conference uh, coming up now, by nation states. Now, if cities have to solve global problems, I, 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 I borrow a phrase that I found on the internet somewhere. You have been asked this question before, but for instance, how are Frankfurt and Athens going to solve the Euro crisis? See, the point, you know, Jean Monnet said in the 1940s when he was entertaining the idea of trying to create a European community so we wouldn't have another 400 years of wars the way the nation states of Europe had done, he said the trouble with the nation state is it's too large for participation, too large for participation, but too small for power. Power is becoming more and more global, but participation is local. Now, I've already made the point, we've kind of agreed that cities are great for participation and democracy and efficient, pragmatic problem solving. But your question is, yes, but wait a minute, power is global, so how are mayors of towns and cities around the world going to deal effectively with global power, global problems? And Two answers, first of all, because in an interdependent world, local and global problems are the same problems. One of the largest problems is global warming. 90% of cities are built on water, lakes, rivers, seas, oceans, which means cities will be the first to suffer 
from sea rise and sea surge and climate change, and mayors know it, which is why so many mayors are angry. And by the way, mayors are already cooperating on climate change in organizations like the C40, Climate Cities, and ICLE, a 30-year-old organization of cities around climate. But take terrorism. The problem with terrorism is it has no address. Terrorism is without borders. And who suffers from terrorism? So far, I think, terrorists have not attacked cows. They might, but so far they haven't. They attack cities. They attack concert halls. They attack where the people are. So terrorism is very specifically a city problem, although it's not necessarily urban in origin. It's a deep city problem, and mayors know it. The result is on issues of security, and you saw this in Paris last week, city police forces are cooperating with one another as much as they are with their own national authorities. New York City has 12 intelligence members of its intelligence squad in cities around the world, in Paris, in Frankfurt, in Hong Kong, and London, and in Rio. That is to say, there's a lot of city-to-city -city cooperation on sharing intelligence to understand the threats of terrorism that come from them. Refugees. We've just watched the collapse of the Schengen system, and now they're talking about going back to national borders, but clearly that's not very effective. And the people where the refugees go, again, refugees don't go to farms either. Refugees go to cities, so it's a mayor's problem. If all the major global problems are also urban problems, then mayors working together may be better able to understand and address them than national prime ministers and presidents who have ideological and trade and other agendas which are often at rivalry with one another. So when cities work together, they find globally the very problems that they deal with one by one. You have been working on uh, this interconnectedness of cities and of mayors all over the world uh, to, to work together on a global scale. How's that project coming along? Well. I'm going to reveal a small secret here, which is actually very exciting. Uh, we have been working for two and a half years not just to talk about mayors working together, but to establish a new international body, a global parliament of mayors. And we've had support from about 150 cities, and we were actually originally scheduled to possibly do a session this fall in London and Bristol. Boris Johnson was a supporter, but Boris Johnson, you know, got elected to uh, the legislature, to the parliament. So uh, we didn't do it there. But we, there is now a firm plan to hold the first inaugural global parliament of mayors with 75 to 125 mayors from cities on all five continents from 50,000 to 20 million in size. We're trying to represent cities across the scale. The first planning meeting for that global parliament was held here in Amsterdam uh, two years ago. And Mayor Vandelan, Mayor Abu Taleb, uh, uh, the mayors from the G4 cities, the mayor of Eindhoven, Van Geisels, Mayor Van Artsen, uh, Mayor of Utrecht were all part of that planning meeting. And my secret is that there is some possibility that the inaugural parliament will be held in a major Dutch city next fall. Yay. And so it could happen <laughs> here in Holland, which would be so appropriate for this great nation of cities 
whose mayors, by the way, you have a problem too. Your mayors aren't directly elected either. So you're, it's not quite China, but I have been pushing very hard to say that in fact there should be a local election of mayors too because it cements the relationship between mayors and their citizens. But there's an extraordinary group of citizens and mayors here. So the global parliament of mayors will happen. It is moving ahead. Holland and Dutch cities like Amsterdam and The Hague and Rotterdam and uh, other cities have played an important role and there is some considerable chance that the inaugural parliament will happen in the place where the League of Nations was originally conceived, uh, where the Dutch Republic once lived here in uh, the cities of Amsterdam. And that to me is an extremely exciting thing. I, I love this country, my work is done here, I'm always glad to come here. But the thought that uh, we might not just be able to do a festival with a lens looking at the world, but might also be the beginning of a new global governing institution that gives new hope for democracy, that that might happen uh, here in the cities of uh, of this great country is to me very, very exciting. So. I don't think there's anything to add. If you have, I'm sorry, if you have any more questions, buy the book, get it signed and ask your question. Thank you very much. We're, we're in 15 minutes, we'll have the next screen. <laughs>